y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 14. 14! I appreciate so much every one of you guys being so loyal and invested in what we're doing here on the Marty Smith's America podcast. We have an awesome show for you today. Lane Kiffin, the head coach of the Florida Atlantic University Owls, joins me for a, an amazing conversation. Lane's the former head coach of the Raiders, the University of Tennessee, Southern Cal. Of course, he was the offensive coordinator at Alabama under Nick Saban. To say this man has some stories and some insight is an egregious understatement. Buckle up, y'all. This one's a hell of a ride. But before we get to Lane and that fascinating conversation about a fascinating life, I want to chat with you guys quickly about Dollar Shave Club. Yes, that Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, smell, and feel your best. You name it. They have shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even butt wipes. Butt wipes that feel your rear end feeling tingly clean. My favorite uh, product that they have uh, at Dollar Shave Club is their shave butter. I actually called them and asked for more. I love this stuff. I use it every single day to make sure my beard is trimmed up and looking, as my man Marcus Spears says, laced. I love it. I'm a big fan of their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. Never smelled anything like it. Good luck finding a product that great at any store. All Dollar Shave Club products are made with top shelf ingredients that will not break your budget. You'll feel the difference, trust me. Plus, shipping is included with your membership. Look, you guys, I live on the road. I'm on the road running all over the country and the world, for that matter, chasing the best stories in sports. And Dollar Shave Club goes with me everywhere and makes sure that I look my best on television. Here's a great way to try a whole bunch of Dollar Shave Club products for just 5 bucks. You can get their Daily Essential Starter Kit. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, those amazing butt wipes I talked about, their world-famous shave butter, keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month, add in shampoo, toothpaste, anything else you need in the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. Trust me, it's the best of the best. Speaking of, let's head off to one of the best offensive minds in all of football, period. Here I am with Lane Kiffin. Describe your personality. Uh, I think that's kind of been different over, over the years, you know, in front of camera versus, you know, um, in front of a team or around your coaches. And I think that at a young age, you know, there was a time there where it felt that, you know, sometimes you watch people and you, you know, you see the bill of checks and stuff. You kind of feel like the savings. You feel like, Hey, there's something to that. Those guys are having so much success. So I think I went that route for a little bit and closed up with media. So, but my personality is not like that. It's very open, engaging. And I think that the people that, that work around us and, players and coaches I think would have a lot of a lot of good things to say how difficult is it to find your own way when you see as you were stating the the success that Belichick or Saban or that type of ilk have and they do have this rough exterior that people that aren't that don't know them see as abrasive how long does it take and what life experiences have to happen in order for you to have the self-confidence to develop who you really are well, I, I do think that takes time. I think it takes everybody time, even those guys, you know. And, um, you know, Saban went through – Saban, I'm sure, on what would this be, his fifth head coaching job is, is a lot better than he was, you know, um, up at Toledo or Michigan State. And, 
Pete Carroll would say the same thing versus the Jets or Patriots. So I think that does take a long time. Um, and I think because you go through stuff younger that you're trying to figure out, okay, am I going to be like the mentors that I have? You know, Pete Carroll's really, uh, you know, I was with him for six years before I became a head coach. So am I going to be like that? Because that's what I know and what I see and what's successful. Or are you going to be different so people don't think that you're like that? And I think I got conflicted through time on that of, you know, I was more like Pete in certain areas with players and stuff. And then it was, you know, you come back to USC. And I, would be, I would like that at Tennessee. You come back to USC and you, have, you replace him. So now you're going in, okay, well, I can't be like him because the players are going to think it's phony, you know. So it, it took me a while um, to figure it out. How has social media impacted your public image? That's a good question. I think bad and good, probably. Um, I think for what's important for the program you're at, for the university, for the football program, for the president, um, I think that it's been it's been really good because it brings a lot of attention to the program, to the university, helps in recruiting. You know, you walk into these homes and these parents and kids say, hey, we love your Twitter. It's awesome. Hey, can you follow me? Those type of things. So from that perspective, really good. I don't know that it's good if you're worried about other jobs outside of you know what other people think other fan bases other athletic directors presidents you know i'm sure that there's some of those that don't really understand why you're doing what you're doing that it may be negative but i've said all along i don't i do everything where i'm at for where i'm at not for the next job or for not what other people are going to think of it you know to make the program successful that i'm in for the people that hire me describe your twitter game sick <laughs> like it, right, here's, a, here's, a, here's a better one. Not not thought out, that's for sure. That's exactly where I was going. You're taking me there, brother. I was going to ask you how impulsive you are on social media. How long do you consider what you're going to say before it's said? About two seconds. Which <laughs> that's is not dangerous, Lane. Not good advice for people listening. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think Michelle Obama once said, like, think before you tweet. I did not follow that at all. So it, uh, I get all questions about it all the time, or you know, or people literally think like, "Hey, you must have meetings in the morning with you know a couple GAs or someone who runs your Twitter, and you guys you know spend an hour figuring out what you're going to say that day." I'm like, no, most of the stuff is literally what our younger coaches or friends send me, and it's like they have a competition to see if I'll if I'll retweet their stuff or or if I'll put out what they send me. So a lot of times that's what it is. It really is not that thought out, and because at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. You know, if somebody if you make somebody laugh. You know, and some people don't like it. Who cares, really? You know, I just, I think I live differently than most coaches. I like it that way. Expound upon that. How and why do you live differently than most coaches? I just think we were trained. You know, if you if there was a book of how to coach and what to say and how to be, you know, and so many coaches follow that. You know, you've got to just say coach speak and you got to say the same stuff over and over and give them nothing and be boring and all that. And But times change, you know. So it, those offenses that were run 10, 20 years ago, they don't work anymore. So we've changed that. So why don't we change how we talk to the media? Why don't we change how we are on social media? Why do we have to be so reserved and guarded and boring and not be ourselves? We change all the other aspects in, in how we coach and how we we manage offense, defense, special teams, go no huddle. You know, so why not? Why don't you answer that for me? Why? Why don't other guys take that approach? Oh, the same reason why people punt on fourth down because that's what you read in the book that you're supposed to be conservative put it take it off of you so you don't have to answer the question in the press conference when it didn't work that you went for it you know that's just that's just how it is yeah you noted about being immersed where you are and living in the moment where you are why fau for a decade um 
I mean, we, we don't know if that's going to happen. You know, obviously, lengths of contracts don't mean how long you're going to be somewhere. Um, but we are extremely happy here, and I know every coach says that. So I think when you don't give coach speak all the time, when you do say something like you're really happy, then people go, oh, wait, I believe it because he would he'd tell us otherwise, you know. And that's a combination of things of a great president, Dr. Kelly, fabulous weather, great city to live in in Boca, house on the water right here, you know, boat in the backyard, and, and the ability to recruit great players right in your own backyard. Well, that's a lot of things you should look for as a coach and in your life too as well outside of just coaching so you know you're not in a place that maybe has good players but you know, you're in a place that doesn't give you the ability to live somewhere like this where it's i always say these coaches come in and complain they say man it's really expensive i said well if somewhere is really expensive it means a lot of people want to live there so it's a good place to live so everything good is bad and everything bad can be good we just saw scott frost go 12 and 0 at ucf what is success at FAU? What, what's the ceiling? Well, I think um, success has already been achieved, but um, the, the the biggest success is success over time and not just doing something, you know, flash in the pan. So, you know, to go from a team that, you know, won three games, three games, three games the previous three years, you know, and the year before we got here, beat Southern Illinois, Rice, and UTEP, the bottom two teams in the conference. So um, these kids doing 11 games and set every record, I think, in the history of the school was amazing. So that, that's a great success for one year. But, but the really good ones, they do it over a long time. You know, that's what the Nick Sabans do. You know, they just do it one year. They do it again and again and again. So to me, that defines real success. You've been around the best of the best. Saban, the best you ever been around? Uh, it just depends. Um, they do him and Coach Carroll just do things completely different. But you know, had had Coach Carroll stayed in college and the sanctions wouldn't have come and he would have stayed there, I think we'd be looking at they'd be doing the same. They'd be equal. You know, they just do it in totally different ways. What what do they do different than the other guys? They really don't do anything the same. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing they do the same is they have a philosophy and they have it nailed. And it's taken a long time to get there, and they would tell you that, but they've been doing it a long time, and but they do have it nailed, so when things come up, they know exactly how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, and as a player, as a coach, you know what to expect. Now, granted, it's very different, but you do know you know, their their principles, their values, how their organization is run, um, because they've, they've done it for so long. How often does Jimmy Sexton, your agent, field calls about potential coaching openings? Uh, well, that's just one time. You know, that's just in the one area, you know, November, whatever, late November, December. So that stuff doesn't happen off season, obviously, because there's not, not jobs or early in the season. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's happened over the last couple of years, different, you know, different places. And so, but, you know, that's, that's just part of the business. Those things are going to happen. And, and it just depends on what stage you are in your life and your career on, on which ones that, that you look at. How many you think? Oh, I don't know that. I mean, it, it all depends on the year. And we had a number of them, uh, you know, uh, when, two years ago when we took this, um, when we took the job here. And um, and luckily, I was in a much more mature thought process than when you're younger, where you're worried, where you're thinking about, okay, bigger job, more money, better conference, you know, things that really don't don't matter at near as much at the end of the day versus a place that has this set up so that you that you can be successful. What's your earliest memory of football? Uh, North Carolina State. Picture in my office of, on my dad's shoulders. 
he was a head coach at NC State. He jumped from Arkansas. I don't. I was born in Nebraska. Then he went to Arkansas. So I don't. I don't remember the first two. But I do remember North Carolina State going up there and, and running around practice and watching watching practice. And, and I called into his radio show that I remember. What'd you say? <laughs> I, I think I said I had an accent back then. Believe it or not, because I'm North Carolina. And I think I said they're like, Dad, when are you coming home? Don't do no X's and O's. <laughs> You say there's a there's a recording somewhere of it that I heard probably about ten years ago, and I I couldn't believe I had that accent. So you had the uh, you had a Central North Carolina accent as a youngin, and you have since because you moved all over creation, lost it. Yes, and out of that, that Alabama and Tennessee people would not would not think that I had that accent at once, but I did. How did growing up in the game impact your opinion of the game? Well, I think first growing up in the game as a coach's son, I think it's extreme value to you um, because what a lot of people assume as an obstacle or a negative is, wow, you had to move like 17 times. And I said, no, that, that was a positive. That obstacle was extremely positive because it allows you to meet different people, have to have the ability to go into different areas. You know, you go in fifth grade, you know nobody, you know, you move in the summer. Here we go, another place. You've got to have the ability to create relationships, meet people, and you're all over the country. So that that part was awesome, I think, and I think ended up helping you recruit too later on, having, you know, going through that experience. Um, and then just being around the game, it just gets you way ahead of it. You know, all those training camps where you're a ball boy, all those meetings you sit in, you know, you're just way ahead of the game for other people your age. What do you remember about doing that, being ball boy in training camp as a, what, teenager? Yeah, yeah, I did it um, every summer. And he was in the NFL when I was when I was older, you know, the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th grade type thing. And, and so you'd go back then, five weeks training camp, you know, it was awesome. You're just, you know, you're a ball boy or – doing laundry or putting pads in their locker and everything and you're getting to know those guys and um i mean it, it's it there's just endless stories of being you know years later you know doing a game as a raiders head coach and rich gans broadcasting it and, and rich remembers me being his ball boy putting his pads in his pants before practice and stuff you know so um there's there's a lot of stories like that chris carter all, all kinds of stories what's the chris carter story no but at the same when he was at the Vikings, just being around chris and, and just watching him practice and how unbelievable of a player that, that he was. Um, and he would just, like, he would, I know the one-hand catch is, like, in now, you know, back then or whatever they call it now. But um, he was doing he was doing it all the time on 40-yard, 40-50-yard down, down the field routes. I love being around him. He has an infectious personality and passion. It's awesome. What was the hardest move growing up? I went in ninth grade. I was in Minnesota, so Bloomington, Minnesota, a little bit slower, you know. And then he goes to the New York Jets, which caused like Pete Carroll. So we go to Long Island, New York. I'm in ninth grade, and I've been like three years in Minnesota or something like that. So we had all the buddies and everything. And um, Long Island, New York's a little bit different. And so um, that transition was nine months. <clears throat> that was not, that was very tough. And um, nine months later, I think nine, nine or ten months later, ended up getting called us back to Minnesota as a defensive coordinator. So was, that was one of the happiest days when we said we're going back to Minnesota. The first meeting with Al Davis put me in the room. How's that go? The interview or one's hired? Interview. Um, <clears throat> interesting. You know, he kind of put you in a room, wanted to study personnel, scheme, you know, what they've done the year before and stuff, and then brought you into it. To comment on it, where you play the players, how you how you would play them, um, you know, it was 
it was interesting because we were like using like a chalkboard, like you know, like a real chalkboard, like the ones they had like thirty years ago, and <laughs> there were no powerpoints, and there, there were no you know neat drawings or anything like that. So it was it was pretty old school, um, but it was it was very it was very interesting. What's he say to you when he hires you? Um, he says, which probably was part of the problem. He says, "Hey, I'm going to give you the keys to this." You know, I've gotten too old to interfere and run this thing, so I want you to be able to do, want you to do the personnel. You know, everything. I'm going to, you know, hire the coach. You're going to hire the coaches. I'm going to be hands off. So I'm like, all right, this, you know, because I'd heard the story before that he had never done that, and that was part of the issue. Uh, and that didn't last very long. I think it lasted about one night <laughs> after, after, I, after I signed the contract. How often did he, I guess I would use the word metal, how often did he inject his opinion into your day? Hourly. <laughs> I can't imagine. What happened, what, happened to, what happened to that first speech he gave about, here's the keys to the, I think he said Mercedes or something, here's the keys to Mercedes, you guys. So what happened? I, I never said that. <laughs> was he an ass-chewer? Like, did he come after you? Well, I, mean, I had him at the end, so he was in a walker, so... When you meet Tennessee fans, what do they say? Uh, they're awesome now. Um, <clears throat> they weren't real good, you know, right when we left. But um, or when we got to Alabama, we went back to the Neyland Stadium and playing there. It wasn't a hundred thousand people chanting "I love you." That's for sure. Um, but no, they're awesome now. What do you remember about that day when you walk back in there with that script A on your chest? What do they say? Um, it's crazy. They literally were talking about like as from the bus in, like, a bulletproof vest, like, and I'm like, come on, guys. I mean, this is football. Like, they're like, no, really. Who are they, yeah, security? Like, yeah, so then they had security, like, with me the whole way, even walking on the field and stuff like that. But I'm like, I'm not wearing a vest, guys. All right? That's a little bit too, that's a little bit over the top. But they, uh, it was all in fun. There was a lot of mean words said and um, four-letter words. But that speaks of Tennessee's fans, how passionate they are. Uh, Bill Fulmer said the other day, I mean, they are the most passionate fans in the country. Detail the worst chewing Nick Saban ever gave you. Oof. A lot of those. Um, I don't know the worst. The one was the one was, was up there just because it was on TV and public and even in the press conference. It was one thing to do it, but then to go in afterwards and laugh about it. And, you know, those are called ass chewings. Ha, ha, ha. You know? Um, that, that, I, would, I would say that would be up there in the top ten. How did he react in uh, when, when you when you saw him again? How did how did he react after you reacted that way? Oh, I act like it never happened. Really? Oh yeah, I will give him a lot of credit on this too. That uh, a million things that he said or not. He did say, "Hey, just so you know, I present how I react. Okay, I'm I'm going to get off my chest what it is. It may not be what people like at all, and it's going to be very aggressive, but then it's over with." He said, I do that because I don't like the coaches that hold things in, you know, complain about it all the time, and then blow up at it way down the road. So get the other right way, strong and fast. So, you know, that is a leadership style that's unique, but he does tell you that in advance. It's the biggest lesson you learned from him. I think A to Z, you know, just the, the detail, which is when you come in there, that, that that's – second to none besides Belichick. I mean, it is every single thing is thought out, hands-on. I mean, from, I mean, where the tent is at practice. I mean, every single thing, you know, what the wind's expected three days from now, 
you know, for the game. You know, he's unbelievable that way. One thing I don't think you get nearly enough credit for is convincing him or at least leading him to tailor an offense around the personnel rather than force personnel to run a specific offense. I think that to be accurate. How does that unfold? That actually is one of the few things that that is probably out there the wrong way that is fun different than what you would think. Meaning that was not that was he was open to that. He in in the interview process of hiring me, he said, I want to change. I feel like our offense is a Lamborghini going off of a cliff. As much as I hate it, because I hate tempo, I hate the RPOs, he can't stand it because it gives the defense so much problem in the college playing rules how it's officiated, he can't stand it. But he was smart enough to know, hey, you know what? I need to give in to this. And I know you know how to do this. Will you come, you know, help us make this change? So that that was that was his idea. I mean, I, I knew how to do it, but it was his idea to be open to it and to allow it to, to happen. What input did he have as it's unfolding? How, how did that relationship develop? How often did he inject his opinion into your philosophy? Um, you know, it, it's not a... You know, he's never going to be a kick it and run it and do, you know, do whatever you want. You know, obviously, you know, that's not his personality, you know, so he's going to still want, you know, certain types of things, you know. Um, so he did, he did, you know, give a lot of free reign to change a lot, do a lot of different, but there were certain things, you know, that he, he still wanted to have, um, you know, because he's the head coach. So, but he really did, and it really was good timing because that was not that was not our best defensive year that year. So there were some games where, luckily, he had made that change in that first year. So I think the Iron Bowl that year is fifty five forty four. You're not used to seeing those type of scores. Mm-hmm. So luckily, he made that change. So he had the ability when games got up there scoring. You know, that we could we could outscore people. Obviously, you know Jalen Hurts and Tua Tagovailoa. What are your thoughts on their quarterback situation? Uh, they're in great position. Everybody in the country like to have it. You know, people say it's a bad thing. It's a great thing. You got two two dynamic players with dynamic skills that are in their first and second year of college. So it ain't like we're talking about old kids. You got freshman and sophomore. You know, um, which is you know, which was why everybody thought we wouldn't be able to get to a with Jalen coming off of a SEC freshman of the year uh, season and to a still game, which speaks volumes to his competitiveness. So I just saw two out in California at camp. Steve Clarkson's camp out there two weekends ago, and he looks great, throwing the ball great. Uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting competition. You've seen a lot of really good college throwers, Lane. How would you analyze Tua's ability to throw it? Oh, top 1%. And even in the, there was a, at this camp, there was a quarterback competition thing, and, and all the top college guys around the country were there and stuff. And he just picks up the ball, and it's about 40 yards. He's got to throw kind of a whole shot, like a touchdown in the championship game. Into this like net thing, you know that you know normal guy might get one out of five. He just picks up two and makes two for two. What? That's just how he is. Oh yeah, forty he's yards away on a dime. Yes, his touch is like he like Steve when you when he was in high school. You ask who you compare him to, right up with Steve Young. You know, just unique ability for the ball and how smooth left hander, and and he makes plays a lot of plays on the run, and his feet save him sometimes, even though he's not a dynamic runner like Jalen. He's really good in the pocket, and he bails out of that third third and long in Georgia where about four guys miss him to keep that dry water. What's it tell you that so many blue bloods show up at your camps, Bama, Georgia, Tennessee, Michigan, Ohio State, Texas, on and on? What's it tell you when those guys show up to see what you're doing? Well, I think it's not as much to see what we're doing. First off, it's because there's great players down there. But 
you know, after last year, we do get a lot of guys coming in here, you know, hey, can we watch cut up with you? Watch this. How are you doing this? How are you doing this? How, how are you guys able to go so fast? You know, I don't know. We ended up at one point, you know, we were snapping the ball faster than anybody in the country. So, um, you know, that, that's good. And it's awesome to be able to share some knowledge with those guys. You're still so young. I mean, you and I are basically the same age. I think you might be uh, even less than a year older than me. What What are your aspirations, man? Like, what do you want to leave? I've changed on that. You know, I was all I was always. <clears throat> You know, how fast can you get the biggest job, which I did, you know, um, with, you know, youngest head coach in the NFL and stuff. You know, how much money can you make? How, you know, how many wins can you have? All those things that really aren't the most important things. And I've, I've really changed now to now. Now to me, it's really about developing coaches and really about helping players. And so this year here helped me learn that as well because most of our guys ain't going to the NFL. Okay, so this was it for these seniors. They're done playing. Well, I've not been in a place like that. You know, Alabama, Tennessee, USC, <clears throat> almost all those guys think they're going to the NFL. These guys, like, we gave them something they never had. The seniors had never won more than three games. So we were able to give them the tools, the <clears throat> teach them schematical stuff, but also mentality stuff, so that they could win 10 straight games in a row, beat Marshall for the first time in school history, beat Middle Tennessee for the first time in nine years. All these things that are huge accomplishments to watch them, to be able to give that to them has been more rewarding than, than any of all those other rings. When did those professional priorities shift for you? Do you remember the moment or the year? Uh, it, it, it's not very long ago. I think that... <clears throat> You know, the firing at USC was very difficult because you felt like you weren't on an equal playing field. You know, we lose 30 scholarships. We're playing with way less people than everybody else. But no one talks about it during the games. We lose a game, and it's like, oh, he coached bad. You know, well, you know, there, there was a reason they gave us basically the death penalty and that no one thought we'd even be 500, let alone 28-15, and we'd still get fired. So that was difficult at the time, but now it was the best thing to happen to me. Had I not done that, I would have never went to Nick Saban. I would have never got to learn from him which I'm a way better head coach today than I was at that time four, four years ago, five years ago. I haven't met a ton of guys who genuinely don't give a what people think. Genuinely don't. A lot of people posture like they don't, but they desperately do. To me, you strike me as one of those guys who just don't care. So I ask you, how much do you care what people think? I care what the people around me, that the players, coaches that work for us, um, everyone in our building, I care what they think. You know, I don't care what people that I don't know think or what people write that have never met me or come down to see what we do. So, and that's changed a little bit. You know, younger I did, you know, I was like, like all these other coaches where, hey, you're going to do an article, they were going to read the article to see what they wrote, you know, and about us and, you know, how to make us look and all that. And, and then you, you realize after a while, who cares? You know, it doesn't matter. You know, that doesn't matter in the long run. Nobody remembers that. And it doesn't matter. You're, you're here on earth for your relationship with the people that you're around, what you can do to help them, not for what someone writes about you across the country or for on a fan forum. It's interesting. How much insecurity is there in head coaching? Uh, a ton. And and that's gotten worse over time because because of the environment we're in that you get fired so fast. So, you know, you don't get four or five years like you used to. Now, there's a lot of great coaches that – didn't win championships for a ton of years, you know, and that if you look at their records early on, they would have been fired nowadays in year three and year four and never would have lasted, you know, <clears throat> through that because there's no patience anymore. So I think that that causes more insecurity um, in coaches because, and then a lot of those guys are first time head coaches. So now they're really insecure. 
it also fosters a lot of irrational thought. <laughs> Having been around a lot of a lot of fan bases, I think uh, you know they're fanatics for a reason. It's, there's a lot of irrational thought. Yeah, and there, and again, things that are really good can be really bad. Nick Saban, who it's um, it's awesome what he's done. All right, the problem with it is is these other fan bases think, well, we can do that. You know, why, why can't we do that every other SEC school? I mean, he came in when, you know, he's in the playoffs every year. We should be able to do that. Now, that's 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 a once-in-a-lifetime type of coach. Yep. I was just with Jimbo Fisher uh, doing a piece for television, and, of course, he's taking on one hell of a challenge. You know, he's going to the SEC West, and he's going to fight that gauntlet with Auburn and LSU and certainly uh, what Coach Saban's done. And he has these aspirations that I'm, I'm, I want to win the league and I want to win a national championship. Like, if that's not my mindset, then what the hell am I doing here? But And 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 knowing that that's what the Aggie fans are expecting. I can't imagine that pressure. I don't know that I'm wired like that. It's, it's not for many, and we've seen that over years. The SEC can, you know, whatever the saying is, take head coaches in, chew them up, and spit them out, you know, and just break them. I mean, we've seen guys just break down. You know, it is not. You better have some security. You better be confident and because you're, you're not going to make it, and it's going to, you know, and it's going to affect you in all areas, as we've seen it do to some guys. All right, brother, last thing, and I'll get you out of here. You've had such a unique path to your present moment of what seems to be great solace. What do you regret? I don't regret anything. I made a lot of poor decisions, but I don't sit around and regret things because it doesn't do any good. Because all you're doing is recapping it. You're looking in the rearview mirror versus looking in the, in the, you know, in the front windshield. And so I used to do that. I used to beat myself up. But it, it doesn't do any good. And get out of the negativity and, and get into a positive world about where you're going, not, not where you've been. Because it really doesn't matter. So players sometimes are going through things, you know. When you go to the airport and you walk up to the, to the desk at the airport, what do they ask you? The first thing they ask you. Besides where are you where going? Right? <laughs> where are you going? They certainly don't ask where you've been. So forget about it. Let's go. What did you beat yourself up about the most? Uh, the UFC thing. Um, <clears throat> even though we were down 30 scholarships, all those things, I just continued to say because I knew that it was one of the top three, four jobs in America and how hard it is to get one of those and then to know you had it and was there anything you could have do different so that you would have stayed there. And so, you know, you beat yourself over everything, one play call, one recruit that you lost, whatever it was. Um, and because my mindset didn't sit there and say, oh, well, we were 30 scholarships scholarships down you know besides that still thought okay could we have won more even without the 30 scholarships you know and two-year bowl ban so but i finally got i finally got through that and turned that obstacle into a positive i can't thank you enough for your time i, I appreciate so much you taking it giving me that insight great stories uh i got me a come to the fau t-shirt i'll put it on wear it around promote you preach the faith get people down there to boca I like it. Rockets put it on Twitter. I <laughs> appreciate you, dude. Have a great day and can, uh, continued success down there, man. All right. Thanks, Marty. Have a great week. Just amazing. I uh, Lane Kiffin's one of the most fascinating people to me in all of sport. And to see his evolution, his ongoing evolution, not only as a coach, um, but as a human being, and to hear him discuss that so candidly uh, with stories about Nick Saban and stories about Al Davis and stories about Tennessee and stories about USC and triumph and failure, um, it was it was awesome to, to spend that time with him and to learn. Again, it just fascinates me. And 
I'm going to bring in uh, my man Ryan McGee now from the Marty McGee program. We're on every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 for a little Marty party. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty party. Yo. As you listen to him, and I know you've covered him for many years now, much longer than I have, when, when you look at Lane Kiffin's body of work in college football, and the NFL for that matter, what do you see? Well, that word you keep using when you talk about him is, you know, or, or that idea is it evolution and, and growing. And it's interesting hearing him talk about look, not looking in the rearview mirror, looking straight ahead. And I, I'll even go, I'll go further back with you than, than any of this. So, you know, my father was a college football referee. We lived in Raleigh. And because we lived in Raleigh, he couldn't officiate NC State games. But he would officiate all of their scrimmages and all of their practices. And his father, Lane's father, Monty, was the head coach at NC State for a couple of years in the early 80s. And so my brother and I would go to Carter-Finley Stadium. And back then, one end zone, it was just a grass hill. And my brother and I would play with Lane Kiffin on that hill. I was probably 10 or 11. My brother's 7 or 8. And Lane Kiffin probably at that time 6. And I'll never, and, and did you just shove him down, roll him right down that hill? Well, he was, he was impossible because <laughs> he was the guy that even at the age of six, throwing a plastic football around, he's calling defensive pass interference and holding and, you know, all this stuff. And like, just, just arguing with us. You ever see the home movies of Peyton Manning and the, the, yep. the Manning 30 for 30? And that's what it was like. It's just constantly, but he already was thinking about football on a level, but his dad would blow the whistle, stop practice and yell up on the hill. Lane, quit being a jerk. And so years later, he gets the Raiders job when he was, you know, 31, 31 years old, 31. That's, I, that's just mind boggling. Yeah, I'll never forget my brother calling me and going, please tell me this isn't that kid that we used to play with at Carter Finley <laughs> Stadium. And it is. And so, but it's amazing to watch the evolution of him, but also we're, we're, we're all like we were when we were kids. And so there's still a little bit of that in him. I mean, but it's amazing. I mean, you and I stood on the sideline at FAU last year we for did. the Shula Bowl for the FIU FAU game. And it's amazing to watch the way he carries himself now versus when he's in Knoxville, when he was in Southern California, even when he was at Alabama. He's a different, he's a different person. Speaking of Knoxville. You're, you are a University of Tennessee volunteer. Yeah. You are an alum of, uh, from Knoxville. And so that year that he was in Knoxville was, uh, interesting, tumultuous, yeah. wound up being very venomous in the aftermath. And to hear him say there during my interview, you know, uh, that, that, that Bama, Bama's security staff wants him to wear a bulletproof vest. What do you remember about his departure? It was, it was funny how it all kind of unfolded because, you know, social media was really just kind of getting going. And so all of a sudden, you know, all of my East Tennessee people, whether it was my in-laws or, or people I went to school with, all of a sudden Facebook just went on fire. Hey, do you know what's going on in Knoxville? And then with work, you know, the phone call started coming. Hey, what have you heard about this? What have you heard about and Chris Lowe you know, our coworker was, you know, covering Tennessee and living there. Chris Lowe is the guy that when the world's most awkward press conference, Tennessee made Lane Kiffin come in the room and address the media before he left, you know, under the cloak of darkness. And these 
almost riots are going on with the students right outside the building. And they made Lane Kiffin come in for this awkward, this just really tense exchange between the local media and Bud Ford, who is the SID, and Chris Lowe is the guy that's sitting right there. If you ever watch on YouTube, him sitting there just kind of trying to watch it all while sitting in the middle of it. But it was that's how just bizarre it was. And what I was honestly worried about was, and this goes to why he's wearing bulletproof vests when he comes back to Knoxville, is just safety. Mm-hmm. Because when the mob mentality takes over, and, I mean, we all laugh about students burning couches or whatever. Well, they're out there burning stuff. And and I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't want him to leave, but I also want him to get to the airport without somebody doing something stupid. That's what you're worried about. That. And I don't worry about the students. I worry about some Yahoo rolling in from the mountains and doing something dumb. That That's what I worry about. One thing that really stood out to me during that conversation with him was uh, that I've been wrong for three or four years now because I've said several times that he's never gotten due credit for convincing Nick Saban to change offensively. Oh, yeah. You, I mean, you heard it there in the podcast. And he actually says, no, no. Coach Saban was ready for change. Yeah. Coach Saban said to him, we need to change, and I need you to help me do that. I found that to be so revelatory because I kind of felt like it was a thing where Lane was like, all right, Coach, we need to tailor this offense to the talent we have rather than trying to make the talent we have run the offense you want. And that is apparently, according to what he just said, not right, not accurate. And and to me, that story goes to why Nick Saban's the greatest coach in the history of college football. Yeah, it's not debatable. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I always go back – people always want to go back to Bear Bryant. Well, Bear Bryant did something similar. There really were two Bear Bryant eras, and people forget this now, but he had this incredibly successful run in the mid-60s. Late 60s, early 70s, people were starting to talk about the game has passed him by. He's never going to win again, and he completely reinvented the offense. And as a result, had that incredible run that Alabama had in the seventies. Nick Saban did the same thing without the pause. Yep. Like he and people forget this now. He went into the NCAA rules meetings arguing against all these. He wanted running to, too he, fast, he, right? He fought yep. it. He fought it hard as he could, and he was trying to protect his, the way he wanted to play football. And so, no, it's it's to me the Lane Kiffin experiment. And and now who Alabama has been ever since then, that's the greatest evidence of the fact that Saban is the greatest of all time. He has a 10-year contract at Florida Atlantic, and uh, who knows if he'll see it out. I mean, listening to him discuss it was, was funny. He's like, you know, it's a piece of paper. What do you see? I mean, I know it's impossible to prognosticate. You just don't know. But facts are he's an elite offensive mind. And he is a polarizing figure that demands you pay attention no matter where he is. So if you look into the McGee crystal ball and think down the line, what, what, what do you see for him? I think that he gets one more shot. At the big time? At, at the big time. And I think it happens, but I don't think it happens immediately. I think it happens in a couple of years. And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, uh, People are the people who run the big programs. I'm talking about the the upper quarter of the Power Five. They are still a little reluctant to buy in, but everyone also knows. And like I said, you and I saw it with our own eyes. Listen, I saw FAU's season finale the last year without him, and I saw FAU's season finale last year, and it was stunning. 
how much oh, better it, yeah, they man. I mean, look, he's a winner. Period. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and he's just, he is an offensive mastermind. But I also think he's waiting for the right situation because you know this because you saw it. He's pretty happy down there. He's and, extremely and happy. And his parents are really happy. And so I think that for the first time in his life, everything's kind of cool right now. Yep. And, 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 and Boca Raton, is a good place to chill with your family. So I, I, I would, I think he's going to, he's smart enough to wait until the right person calls. And, and I, it was, I was fascinated by what he said about the SEC because I don't know if that's where he goes. I, I you know, it, it, man, can you imagine if he went to the Big Twelve and was handed <laughs> that offensive talent that yeah. all those teams have? I Goodness mean, can you imagine? And, and without the pressure, or without the just the the headlines of where you went to lunch every day, I just I, – but I think that's what happens. I think the McGee crystal ball says he goes somewhere, he gets one more crack at it, but it's not next year. I think it's still a couple years away. As McGee so deftly said there with a tremendous segue, Lane Kiffin is waiting for the right call, and we wait for the right call every single week from you guys on the Marty Smith America podcast, Hillbilly Hotline. We're going to get to that in just a minute. A hilarious call from the Marty and McGee program Saturday morning. But before we get to the Hillbilly Hotline, listen up, people. I have a huge favor to ask, and it won't take but just a second. Our show is supported by some fantastic sponsors, right? Well, we'd love to hear your feedback. Head over to ESPNPodcastStudy.com. That's ESPNPodcastStudy.com and fill out a short anonymous survey for me. It'll be a huge help for us and a huge thank you to the sponsors that support this show. That's it. Swear. Again, ESPNPodcastStudy.com and submit your feedback to us about our sponsors. Now, before you head over to ESPNPodcastStudy.com, Listen to this little ditty about the beauty of the mullet. Words, sayings, or just a way of life? The bowl cut plus the mullet, the bullet. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. I wanted to tell you about my mullet I had from 6th to 8th grade. <laughs> I, had a, I had a great mullet. I also had the rat tail. To go along with that, Daggum yeah, both you did, son. Uh, yeah, there my, you go. my seventh my seventh grade uh, yearbook picture consisted of a full mullet with the rat tail coming around the shoulder, and a Harley Davidson T shirt with the big old bald eagle on it. That is and, America uh, course, as it gets. Uh, so hold on now. Of course, my mama didn't know it was a uh, picture day. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so the mullet. What was the length of the mullet? Were you, were you shoulder length? Maybe a little deeper. I, I was shoulder length with the fluff on top. Nice. Man, did you have any stripes uh, buzzed in the side? Oh, uh, well, the buzz came out too. It was I was fluffy on the sides too. I just let it go, you know. And and I had the rat tail coming around, and it, my rat tail was down to the middle of my back. Golly, yeah, son. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I have a buddy. I've talked about him on this show before. I have a buddy named Scott Sparks, and Scotty sent us a picture. We have this group text of me and all my buddies I grew up with, and Scotty sent us a picture of him in Little League basketball, like in, uh, in like Pee Wee League basketball, and he has on those little old teeny shorts and that little old tight shirt, and he has a <laughs> – his mullet is so distinct and so long and so glorious. He looks like a gremlin. 
Like, <laughs> remember that gremlin, that real mean, like Scar oh, yeah. or whatever oh, yeah. that gremlin's name? Well, he looks like that gremlin. They put water on him. Yeah. yeah, you put water on him and he just bubbles up and dies. <laughs> Hilarious. Mama didn't know it was picture day. I love it. About 90% of my school pictures, Mama didn't know it was picture day. I have one. Speaking of mullets, I have one from when I think I was in seventh grade. And I have on, I don't know how, maybe Mama did know it was picture day on this day, but I have on a button-up shirt, I have on a sweater over top of that shirt, and my hair is like spike, it was called the spike when I was a kid. You go into the barber shop, hey man, I want a spike. So I have the spike on top, I have the three lines shaved in over my ear, and I am shoulder, I'm at least mid-neck length mini truck mullet and my teeth are so jacked up it is an abomination Dude, yes the pictures exist we need one of these maybe i will tweet one maybe i will tweet one maybe what um, would you what would you do if your son was like dad i want to rock the mullet i'd let him i don't care what would laney say uh laney probably would not be thrilled at all that i just said i'd let him i don't care i can just remember my father telling me i could get any hair haircuts are fine no earrings my my daddy wasn't into the earring thing um He'd be like, boy, I'll jerk that thing right out of your ear if you get an earring. I had the buzz cut. Just went over to grandma's. She'd cut my hair. Yeah. Well, that's what I had in college. I cut my own hair in college. I had some of those wall hair trimmers, hair clippers. Oh, with the guards? Yep, with the guards. And I'd just sit there like with a number one guard and rub it all the way all over my whole head. I, I had the buzz all through college. That was a mistake because uh, my ears look like satellite dishes. Poor, I mean, my ears are ridic- ridiculous. I when I see my, I don't like watching myself on television. It's, I just don't. I don't like hearing myself. I don't like watching it. But when I do, like if I'm in a bar, my buddies and I are having a beer and I end up on the TV, I'm like, good Lord, look at those things, man. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Your conviction and loyalty for the Marty Smith America podcast is so important. You're the reason we do it. Hey, Marty, and if the, they want to call in, what do they do? Uh, they ask Travis what the number is. 860. 860- Five one six one three one five eight six zero five one six one three one five. Call us with your ridiculous stories about being rednecks. Uh, they make us happy. They make us smile. They inject joy into our lives that otherwise wouldn't be there. I don't think that people understand what these stories do for us. And no. like when they tweet at us, they make our our work easier. They fill up our tank and our man. life so much better. Uh, you could have your story on the Marty Smith America podcast. Eight six zero three one five. What is it? Eight six zero five one six one three one five. There you go. Uh, and I want to thank quickly again the sponsors that make this show possible. Thank you so much to Dollar Shave Club for being involved in this show today. Y'all go make sure you go to dollarshaveclub.com and get your travel pack today. Thank you so much to Kalo Rings, the functional wedding ring. I have one on right now just like I do every day. They make this show possible, and it's appreciated so much that they believe in this product just like you guys do. And thank you so much to Travis for his hard work. He's the one that got us Lane Kiffin. Thank you to Louise for being crazy enough to give us his platform and believe in this platform from day one and, again, above everybody else. Thank you guys. Without you guys listening, I don't even know why we'd be doing it, listening to our own heads ring. And God bless America. Thank you guys. Have an awesome week. And God bless mullets.